Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you very much for joining us again. Are you well? Yes, thank you. Good. This is the last in the series of scandals in uh, Anglo Jury. Thankfully, there were only four scandals ever in Anglo Jury. That's right, yes. That was what I was taking out of there. But in this last podcast in this series, you called it The Chancellor in 1912. It's going to be actually a two-part series because it seems like this is a big story. Yep, hopefully we're going to leave them on a cliffhanger at the end of today. Mm, So you better tune in for next week's. So firstly, 1912, how would you describe what the Jewish world looked like in 1912? Well, in a way, they've achieved a measure of stability. The pogroms in Russia were nowhere near as frequent and as destructive as they had been at the end of the 19th century. There was emancipation across Western Europe. In America, Jewish immigrants were more secure than they had been 20 years earlier, although there was still a long way to go for things like workers' rights. But of course, history in hindsight tells us that this was the calm before the storm, before the revolution in Russia, which would close down Judaism for 70 years, before the Holocaust, before the upheavals that would take place in Israel, both between the First and Second World Wars and in the immediate period after the Holocaust. So January 1912 would have been a time of relative calm. But how about in the UK specifically? Well, In terms of UK jury, if I were to ask you to think of a time where there were a quarter of a million Jews in the country, when three Jews were in government, including two in the cabinet, and when Jews constituted 15% of the wealthiest millionaires in Britain, you wouldn't automatically think to 1912. In fact, this record wouldn't be equaled until Margaret Thatcher's time in the 1980s. So it was a time of freedom for them. Politically, they have seats both in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And conditions for immigrants were far better than sweatshops of the Lower East Side Manhattan. The major difference between then and now in the UK is that the vast majority of Jews 100 years ago were not just working class, they were as poor as shul mice. (laughs) There was one major roadblock, and in many ways it was a scandal too, and that is the Aliens Bill of 1905. Is that aliens? Uh, No, as in immigrant aliens, (laughs) and how it came to become law in England. So we get two scandals today, sort of for the price of one. Yes, although ultimately they come back to the same underlying issues as we will see. So from 1881 onwards, when the Russian Tsarist regime makes it clear that the Jews are now a constant target, Jews emigrate in large numbers. But unlike America, which saw 40 million general immigrants enter 
over a 50-year period, of which 4 million were Jews, England already had an established population, and therefore you didn't need that many Jewish immigrants to become visible and uh, threaten to upset the apple cart. Even tens of thousands of Jews would do it, and the Jewish population tripled at the end of the 19th century to uh, around 120,000. And who is getting uncomfortable with all these Jews coming in? The local Jews, not the non-Jews. Because interestingly, within England, there wasn't entrenched anti-Semitism in the working class, nor was the Conservative Party in the late 1800s inherently anti-Semitic, which, for instance, its counterpart in Germany definitely was. They weren't as right-wing. But the assimilated nouveau riche, these uh, arrivistes, they're feeling uncomfortable about having tens of thousands of Yiddish-speaking Jews around because these immigrants will put me in a bad light when I want to hobnob with my Gentile neighbours and pretend I'm one of them. They're going to lump me together with those people in the East End. So within the Jewish anglicised community, there developed two groups. One which said, we shouldn't be seen to encourage the Jews to come. We should let them understand that we prefer England to be a staging point for them to go to America, but we don't want them here. And that was the more mild reaction. Mm. Whereas the very assimilated Jews actually petitioned the government to change the law so that Jews would not be able to get into the country. Because how would I get my peerage? And we see how the damage of self-hating Jews can be even more damaging than non-Jewish Gentiles yeah, being anti-Semitic. In, in a way, this is Isaac Disraeli two generations later. Mm. And so you've got Jewish MPs like Harry Samuel, Harry Marks, Benjamin Cohen. They vote for the Aliens Bill in 1905, which restricts Jews being allowed into England, and it passes into law. And this was literally written about Jews, that's why it said, or is it immigration in general? It's immigration in general, but essentially those people coming over in large numbers at the time, were. unlike the USA, were Jews. Mm. And Benjamin Cohen is the president of the Board of Guardians, which is an irony that you couldn't have made up. In other words, he is the president of the board created by Jews to help immigrant Jews and run the charity relief schemes. And that means that some of the people running the board are looking at their Eastern European counterparts as undesirables. They get Jews to be sent back to Eastern Europe now, they call it repatriation because it sounds so much better, less threatening. But who wants to be repatriated to Tsarist Russia? And they pass a rule amongst themselves, the Jews on this board, that no immigrant to England can be helped by the Board of Guardians during their first six months in the UK. In other words, when these immigrant Jews are at their most needy and vulnerable, when they don't speak the language, when they don't know the lie of the land, and they all tell their friends back home in Eastern Europe, and hopefully 
the Eastern European Jews will stop coming and I can get back to assimilating in earnest. What was the religious percentage of the Jews in England at the time? The reason I almost can't answer that question is because the definition of religion is very vague, meaning that there are quite a few Jews who have come from extremely religious families, but given the position that they are put in and given the economic reality, it's difficult to talk about somebody who no longer keeps Shabbos as not necessarily being religious. Mm. It's a very different setup to the one that we are fortunate to be part of today. Right. And the reason that history like this should be known is because it can happen that when those who are very far from Judaism and are in positions of authority, they can make a negative impact on the Jewish community. And for instance, in the States nowadays, things are headed that way at great speed, especially for people who are in their 30s and 40s and their relationship with other Jews and with Israel, for instance. There's a great line in one of Saki's satirical novels, H.H. Munro, where one of the characters says, and this is the end of the 19th century, no one in England is really an anti-Semite. And her friend replies, I know a great many Jews who are. (laughs) Now, to be fair, uh, there were certain very wealthy Jewish families like the Rothschilds and the Montagues, where some of them were exceptional individuals. In fact, Samuel Montague was an MP for Bethnal Green in the heart of the East End, and he would create a lot of poor relief schemes. He did a lot for the Jews in that part of the world. But there were establishment Jews who didn't want these Yids coming over. They even get the chief rabbi to send a message to the communities in Eastern Europe that the streets in London aren't paved with gold and don't think that you're necessarily going to change your fortunes by coming over here. But how does this lead to our 1912 scandal? Well, initially, there's no connection at all because the scandal in 1905 leaves the wealthy uninvolved, obviously, whereas in 1912, it's only them, but the circle will be closed over the next decades. The 1912 scandal starts with Guillermo Marconi, who is experimenting with wireless broadcasting in Italy. His mother was the daughter of Andrew Jameson, who was a well-known whiskey distiller. And she writes to her influential relatives. And as a result, Marconi was able to set up in England in 1896, and he makes very real progress with his company. In 1910, he hires Godfrey Isaacs as his co-director, to manage the finances and the business side. And Isaacs, in turn, submits a proposal to the colonial office, a plan for an imperial wireless scheme linking the mother country, the UK, with its colonies by means of wireless stations at 1,000-mile intervals. And Isaacs and Marconi 
travel to the USA uh, to buy up a potential rival and to create a share offer in the American Marconi Company. Now, on Godfrey Isaac's return to England on 8th April 1912, the dates being particularly relevant, he offers his brothers Rufus and Harry Isaacs some of the American Marconi shares, which are not yet open to the public. So Rufus Isaacs is at the time the Attorney General of the British government, which is a cabinet position. So he is cautious about buying shares because of his position. He felt he couldn't deal directly with his brother because his brother is still technically negotiating for a contract with the post office. Of course, it just so happens to be that the postmaster general, the person in charge of awarding these contracts for the government, is also Jewish. Just so happens. Mm. His name is Herbert Samuel, and he will eventually, and one can say unfortunately, become the High Commissioner to Palestine when Britain takes over the mandate in 1920. So, back to this meeting on the 8th of April. Godfrey Isaacs, the business brother, reassures Rufus Isaacs, the Attorney General, that the American Marconi Company held no shares in the English Marconi Company at all. But Rufus still decides that he's not going to buy any shares for the sake of good appearances. A short while later, the government in England receives the Marconi contract favourably, and as a result, the British and the American Marconi shares rose in price. But beyond the favourable position of the British government in mid-April, there is another compelling reason for the sudden rise in stock prices. 14th April 1912. What happens? The Titanic? Indeed, the Titanic disaster. And many of those who survived the shipwreck almost certainly owed their lives to the presence of a wireless telegraph on board the ship. And this makes it an international matter. Rufus now buys 10,000 American Marconi shares at two pounds, two pounds each, and justifies it by buying them from his other brother, Harry, so he couldn't be accused of taking favours from a government contractor. And to emphasise the point, he pays the full two pounds per share, even though his brother offers them at the price he had originally paid on the 8th of April. That same night... Rufus gives two of his close friends a chance to participate in his investment. Lloyd George, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Alec Murray, who is the Liberal Chief Whip. And the Marconi shares continue to rise to an unofficial price of £6. Rufus Isaac's brokers advised him on the 19th of April, which is the opening day of public trading, to sell his shares because they believed that the price was artificially high and there would be a slump. So he sells half his stock, as does Lloyd George and Alec Murray. However, the volatile nature of the Marconi market was such that by the time Lloyd George and Isaacs appear before Parliament in March of 1913, they had actually made a net loss on their 
transactions. And then word gets out. Firstly, about the agreement itself, where you have the Attorney General, seemingly, persuaded by his brother, who then helps convince the Postmaster General to approve a contract. Three Jews. And some government ministers, on the advice of the Attorney General, are offered shares before the market has officially opened, and therefore at a lower price, and they sell them at the height of the boom, making huge profits. And they're able to do this because of the confidential information they had about the forthcoming contract. I'm seeing the scandal. Right. And the situation is not improved by the reticence of the Postmaster General in publishing details of the agreement or answering questions in the House of Commons. By July, many of these rumours had been put into print. The first article appears in The Outlook, written by William Lawson, who had been an editor at the Financial Times and understood finance. This arouses the interests of Leo Max, who's the owner of the National Review, who also puts out an article about it. And then there's another journal, The Eyewitness, which in August 1912 coins the phrase the Marconi scandal. And they put an article out in which they say, what progress is the Marconi scandal making? Everyone knows the record of Godfrey Isaacs and in general the whole Isaacs family. It has been secretly arranged between Isaacs and Samuel that the British people shall give the Mulconi family a very large sum of money in exchange for a monopoly. A monopoly which refused competing tenders far cheaper and far more efficient and saddling the country with corruptly purchased goods. Not an ideal editorial. Hmm. And the article is a conspiracy theory and clearly contains libelous statements against both Isaacs and Herbert Samuel. But the politicians choose not to sue the journal because the Prime Minister, Asquith, suggested that a prosecution would secure notoriety. But by now, a lot of members of Parliament hear about this. And Parliament and the press are all looking for blood. And the people involved are all Jews. Even more problematic was the fact that the Prime Minister could not afford adverse publicity because the Liberal Party, the ruling party, was going through a difficult time. In fact, over the next three years, the Liberal Party would fall apart. Labour would take over and the Liberals would never be part of government again for the rest of the 20th century. So Parliament is now in recess. It's August. But the Liberal Party had to agree to a parliamentary investigation by select committee and to a debate in October. The fate of the government is in the balance and the careers of those Jews, as well as the fate of the company. But, and this is important, we also have to consider the wider effect on the Jews in the UK. No less a newspaper than the Jewish Chronicle warns the Jews of England that a storm is coming. Now, there had been riots against the Jews in South Wales in 1911, but that had been localised. This is a national issue. 
And the Labour newspaper, the Daily Herald, wrote as follows. We have absolutely no anti-Semitic feeling. We do not care two straws what a man's nationality may be. But it is a fact that wealthy Jews dominate this and practically every other European country which has any claim to commercial eminence. And these same Jews frequently use their wealth in ways which are not conducive to the happiness and well-being of the working classes. Obviously without any anti-Semitic feelings. Right, absolutely. Right. But the thing is here, because it's a Labour newspaper, the people who will pick up on this are the working class. Mm. Now, we are generally unaware of any obvious backlash against the Jews in England in 1912. So we assume that this must have blown over, but we would assume incorrectly. It's just that the backlash happened in a very British way, but it lasted in many ways for almost 40 years. Well, that's a real cliffhanger over here. I would like to hear the rest almost today and release to the public next week. (laughs) Patience is a virtue. (laughs) Thank you very much again for joining us. And please make sure to tune in for the second half of the final episode in Scandals of Anglo Jury. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.